to travel through Genesis at breakneck speed for a 50-chapter book, and today we are in the 39th chapter. Remember, we're looking at God's gifts in Genesis, and today we see the gift of God's steadfast love even in times of suffering. And I hope you will follow along in the words. I'm going to read this passage for us today. Verses 1 and 2 and 6b through 21. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph... And he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, and after a time his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge." He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was there in the house, She caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. She told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. Back in 1983, a book was published by Chuck Colson, and it carried the title, Loving God. And for some of you, if you're old enough, you remember that name, Chuck Colson or Charles Colson. You remember that political time in our nation's history where we had the Watergate scandal going on in Washington, and you'll remember that Chuck Colson was special counsel to President Richard Nixon from 69 to 73. 
You might also remember him as one of those Nixon aides who went to prison because of that political cover-up. You might also know that while he was in jail, Colson was converted by the power of the Holy Spirit. His life was totally turned around and he began to serve Jesus as Lord. And shortly after that conversion, in 1976, he formed what is known as Prison Fellowship, a nonprofit Christian ministry geared toward prisoners and their families. And that ministry still goes on today, even after his death. And in that book, Loving God, he tells the story of being in Delaware State Prison on Easter of 1980 and the thoughts going through his mind that particular day. As I sat on the platform waiting my turn at the pulpit, my mind began to drift back in time to scholarships and honors earned, to cases argued and won, to great decisions made from lofty government offices. My life had been the perfect success story, the great American dream fulfilled. But all at once I realized it was not my success God had used to enable me to help those in this prison or any other. My life of success was not what made this particular morning so glorious. All my achievements meant nothing in God's economy. No, the real legacy of my life was my biggest failure, that I was an ex-convict. My greatest humiliation, being sent to prison, was the beginning of God's greatest use of my life. He chose the one experience in which I could not glory for His glory. Colson continues, Confronted with this truth, I discovered in those few moments in that prison chapel that my world was turned upside down. I understood with a jolt that I had been looking at life backward. But now I could see. Only when I lost everything I thought made Chuck Colson a great guy had I found the true self God intended me to be and the true purpose of my life. And he sums up by saying, it's not what we do that matters, but what a sovereign God chooses to do through us. God doesn't want our success. He wants us. He doesn't demand our achievements. He demands our obedience. The kingdom of God is a kingdom of paradox where through the ugly defeat of a cross, a holy God is utterly glorified. Victory comes through defeat, healing through brokenness, finding self through losing self. Now, why did I want you to hear those words from Chuck Colson? Because I think they give a modern perspective to this passage of Scripture before us in Genesis 39. 
It's true, Colson was thrown into prison, but he got what he deserved. His punishment fit the crime, and he'd be the first to tell you that. And he'd be the first to tell you how God used that time in his life for the, for the betterment of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. The same thing is true in this Joseph story as well, except that we see a new and different twist in that Joseph held true to himself. And more importantly, Joseph held true to God. He didn't commit any crime. He told Potiphar's wife, even as she tempted him day after day after day, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And yet out of that strict adherence to integrity and obeying what will become God's law, remember God's law hasn't been given yet, We don't have the Ten Commandments. We don't have thou shalt not commit adultery. But yet Joseph adheres to what will one day be God's law. And what happens? He's thrown into prison for a crime he didn't commit. It wasn't right, but it happened. He was actually suffering the consequences of doing the right thing instead of the wrong thing. And we're told that even through all of this, the Lord was with him and showed him his steadfast love. Now I want to ask you, do you believe that? Do you believe he was being shown the steadfast love of the Lord when he gets to go to prison for a crime he did not commit? I mean, because of hindsight, because most of us here today probably know the ending of this story in another chapter in Genesis, we would timidly say, well, yes, God was showing His steadfast love. But if this was taking place in your own life or in my life, I don't think we would be so quick to answer that question with the word yes. Would you really claim that God's steadfast love was with you if you were stuck in prison for doing the right thing? Or if you lost your job because you made the right ethical decision? Or if your family was was in financial trouble because you had made the correct decision? I don't know if I could claim God's steadfast love or not. Instead, I'd be demanding to know whatever happened to the spiritual principle of the law of the harvest. In other words, why am I reaping what I have not sown? Doesn't Scripture teach that we reap what we sow? What's happening there, God? You ever feel like you're just another Joseph In this world where the wicked prosper and the good somehow fall by the way? Well, if you do, then that's a good thing. And that's a good thing precisely because it puts you in company with Jesus Christ. Jesus spent His whole earth, we might as well say, rejected and ostracized. You remember Jesus, even as an infant, was a refugee. Had to flee the land of His birth. We see all of these refugees in the world today, and Jesus was one of those with no means of support. He was rejected. He suffered. 
He had to listen to people contradict the truth of God's Word. He was spit upon. He was flogged. And He was crucified on a cross because He did the right thing. He showed the world what the love and the grace and the compassion of God are all about. And they couldn't take it. They killed Him for it. You see, a person like Jesus showed them their own failures and their own flaws and and their own sins, and they couldn't stand it. So they took it out on Him, and in the end, they killed Him. Pilate was so right when he said this man has done nothing to deserve death. The only thing he had done was to live a perfect life and he's doing the right thing all of his life, sent him to the cross. But even then, God's steadfast love was still with him, though I'm sure it didn't appear that way to his mother Mary and to John standing there with her and to any other followers that would have been there witnessing him being executed on a cross by the Roman government. And when they heard those sad and forlorn words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They must have thought Jesus was truly abandoned, not only by his own followers, but by his heavenly Father. But if we look at that entire 22nd Psalm and not just the first line that Jesus quoted, we begin to see that Jesus' words were not a total cry of despair, but the prayer of a righteous sufferer who still trusts in the protection of God and at the same time confidently expects vindication by God because that's what Psalm 22 as a whole is all about. And Jesus' own life and our reflecting on the type of life He lived and the way He was treated can give us the strength and the endurance we need to continue to live like Joseph and do the right thing, to continue to live like Jesus and do the right thing even if we're suffering for it. The New Testament writers make it clear that if we follow Jesus Christ and try to imitate Him, that we will suffer for it in one way or another. We may be ridiculed by our friends or by people around us in the workplace or in our schools. Uh, We might be blackballed by special groups or clubs of which we would like to belong. We might actually face physical persecution and death like Christians are facing all over the world today in places like Iraq and Syria and Nigeria and the Sudan. Those New Testament writers also say that we can make it in the midst of our suffering, whatever it is, because Christ suffered first. And because He suffered in more ways than we can ever imagine, especially spiritually speaking. That's what Peter means when he says in his first letter to keep your conscience clear so that... Notice he doesn't say if. So that when you're abused, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it's better to suffer for doing right, if that be God's will, than for doing wrong. For Christ also died for sins once for all. The righteous for the unrighteous that He might bring us to God, being put to death 
in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. And you see, we don't always know why, but God uses the hard times in our lives for His glory and His purposes. That time that Joseph spent in prison helped to discipline and train him for the much larger job of overseeing the land of Egypt all during those seven years of plenty and those seven years of famine to come so that he could save thousands of lives so that he could save, most importantly, theologically speaking, the patriarchal line of Israel, meaning his father and brothers and their children. But this is not just this passage about Joseph's integrity and his character and his growth as important as those are. This 39th chapter, once again, points us to God and His sovereignty. It once again shows us beyond a shadow of a doubt that God can and will bring His plans to fruition through good things, through mediocre things, even through bad things, that God can work His will even through the most devastating of circumstances. This is what Joseph discovered like Jacob did before him, like Isaac did before him, like Abraham did before him. And people like you and I can come to understand that in our own lives as well. It's what Chuck Colson came to see. It was only when he lost everything that he thought he was that he came to understand the true purpose of God in his life. And God can do that for you and for me. He still chooses those things in which we cannot glory for His glory. Using the hard and agonizing times in our lives for purposes we may not even ever know. This side of eternity. But yet through it all, His steadfast love is still with us. Joseph came to see God's love. He came to experience God's blessing in a way in which the other patriarchs had not been able to experience God's blessing because he went all the way from the bottom being in jail to all the way to the top of the known world. Can you imagine? And what we have to understand is regardless of what's happening in our lives right now, good or bad, God's steadfast love is still with us. And we can know that even in a more real way than Joseph ever could because Jesus Christ died on the cross for you and for me. That's how we know God's steadfast love is always with us regardless of what's taking place. That God shows His love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And he continues to show his love through the presence and power of his Holy Spirit. You know, sometimes you'll hear people, Christian people, going through especially rough times and they'll say something like this, and they've said it to me before, only God's going to get us through this. Only God can get us through something like this. And that's so right because those words sum up exactly 
what Peter says at the end of all that section of suffering in his letter when he says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will do right and entrust their souls to a faithful Creator. You hear what Peter's saying there? Do right and trust God. It's the same thing Psalm 37 says, where the psalmist says, Trust in the Lord and do good. You do right and you trust in God. Regardless of what kind of storm is in your life. That's what Joseph did. And if you know the end of that story, you know he'll tell his brothers, you meant it for evil. But God meant it for good. Amen? Amen. As I told you last week, our moderator of our denomination, which is the top official that we have in our denomination, has called for us to have a special time of prayer for Christian brothers and sisters all around the world who are being persecuted. And he's also calling for a time of prayer and fasting tomorrow specifically. And I understand that some of us have health concerns that will keep us from being able to fast. But for those of you who can do that safely, physically speaking, I hope you will. You know, one of the things we're taught to do with fasting is that if we miss a meal or two meals, you know, we're, we don't have that time that we have to prepare the meal. We don't have that time that we have to clean up from that meal. And so we can take all of that time and put it toward praying for those who are being persecuted in the world. Uh, we in America, I think, are very insulated from knowing what's going on in the world and what's happening with the persecution of Christian people. And so before I lead us in a prayer, I just want to try and inform you a little bit of some things that I've been finding out. You know, we have some missionaries as a denomination in the land of Turkey, and those missionaries know a Turkish pastor. And first, I want to read you some words from this Turkish pastor. Turkey is a country that has Syria and Iraq on its southern border and Iran on its eastern border. In the past weeks and months, we've seen many people fleeing these countries and coming to Turkey, leaving their homes and jobs behind. Many of the refugees coming from Iran are Christians. There are many refugees in Turkey. From Syria alone, there are about 1.5 million people. Many of these refugees become beggars or work in very hard and dangerous jobs. Many of them are homeless. And yet even with these poor living standards, more and more are still coming. Now we are seeing people fleeing to Turkey from ISIS, an Islamic terrorist group that wants to make a caliphate in Iraq and Syria. To accomplish their goal, ISIS is targeting anyone who doesn't live or dress according to their laws, especially Christians. When ISIS finds these people, they ask for unreasonable amounts of taxes or they kill them. And from those that flee, ISIS takes all of their valuable possessions so the people are fleeing with nothing. ISIS spreads terror at merciless levels. 
For example, imagine driving down the road and the car next to you pulls out two machine guns. Or you hear a knock at your door and when you open it, you are killed and then they bury the women and children alive or behead them and take pictures with the heads. This has become routine for ISIS. You hear what he's saying? This is routine. Public group executions have become like a daily affair. ISIS does not look like they're going to stop with their massacres. So people are in fear and terror and fleeing to Turkey. And then the pastor says, these things are written in the Bible in Psalm 2.1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Through all of these struggles, we see the truth and strength of the gospel. For our eternal hope is in the Lord. Even so, as believers in Turkey seeing these developments in our area, we feel sadness and worry about those who do not know the Lord and do not share the hope that we have. We are always praying for them. We are praying for our leaders in Turkey and for our neighboring countries. We are trying to spread the gospel to Turkish citizens and to refugees in Turkey and be lights to them. We also want to continue in these hard times to explain and teach how we need to take refuge in God. Please remember us. We need your prayers and support. This work of God is not only ours, but also yours. Continue to pray for us. And you know, what's happening is that there's so much persecution about Christians that is not being reported that one of the top Jews in our world today, Ronald Lauder, president of the World Jewish Congress, asked in a recent editorial in the New York Times, why is the world silent while Christians are being slaughtered in the Middle East and Africa? Most of us have probably heard or at least read of that terrorist group in Nigeria, Boko Haram, which has killed and kidnapped hundreds of Christians. You know, that's the same group that kidnapped all of those schoolgirls here about two months ago. That was in the news all of the time. But now we're hearing more and more about ISIS, which is an acronym for the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria. And this is not just a loose coalition of jihadist groups, but a real military force that has managed to take over much of Iraq, geographically speaking, and some would say it's the wealthiest terrorist organization in the world, and no doubt the most brutal. They are literally killing every Christian they see, even beheading children. This is the same group that beheaded the American journalist, Mr. Foley, you know, just a week or so ago. Now, we heard a lot about that, but we don't hear about how so many Christians are being killed in the same way. I don't know if he was a Christian or not. But what I want you to hear is that this is what Paul, the Apostle Paul, is talking about in Ephesians 6 when he says, We are not contending against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, against the powers, against the world rulers of this present darkness, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness, 
in the heavenly places. Therefore, take the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. You know, it's the same passage of Scripture where Paul talks about how we're to take the shield of faith, we're to take the breastplate of righteousness, we're to take the helmet of salvation, we're to take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And he goes on to say, Pray at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. That's what our moderator is asking us to do today and tomorrow. And I encourage you to participate in that as much as you can. Even though the world news sounds very grim, and is, what we have to remember is that he who is is in the he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world, as John puts it in his first letter, and he can say that because of Jesus' words that he records for us in the sixteenth chapter of his gospel, where Jesus says, "In the world you have tribulation." But be of good cheer, for I have what? Overcome the world. So for our prayer, I'm going to use two psalms to help us to begin that prayer. Uh, Psalm 13 and Psalm 43, where the psalmists help us so much uh, to put into words some of the emotions that we have at times like this when we find out about that kind of uh, barbaric treatment that our brothers and sisters are receiving. So let us pray together. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man deliver me, for you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? 
Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. And dear Father, we thank you for the way in which your psalmist speaks of hope. That word hope that we find all through your word in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And we think of those words of Peter once again, that by the mercy of God, we have been born anew to a living hope through the resurrection power of Jesus Christ and into an inheritance which is unfading and always kept in heaven for you. Dear Father, we pray for this gift of hope to be upon your church throughout the world today. We pray for your protection for our brothers and sisters who are losing their lives by the hundreds and thousands. We pray that you and your kingdom will demolish this great evil that's in the world and that you'll use whatever means you see fit. Dear Father, we know we're to pray for our enemies and we pray for ISIS and other such terrorist organizations and we pray that the power of your Holy Spirit will come and change many hearts. And dear Father, we continue to pray for the faithfulness of those like this Turkish pastor who serves in the midst of so much overwhelming need. Oh God, help us to have a love for all the world. Help us to have a love for our brothers and sisters that continues to remember them in prayer. Help us to have a love for the lost, the kind of love your word tells us you have, and that you so loved the world you gave your only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. We thank you for that good news, and we thank you for the way we have it to proclaim and live by And we thank you for the protection you have given to us. We pray that you'll help us not to take it for granted. And, oh God, give us your guidance and your wisdom in how to pray and in what to do to encourage and support Christians throughout the world today. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.